and welcome to The Worst Best Sellers, where sometimes we actually read good stuff. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And this is our book year in review, part two. Yeah. So if you missed the first part, uh, we're going to go over sort of the the rules that we have for ourselves for this year in review to make it a little clearer. And uh, then we will be talking about good books. If It's going to be like a high school paper. We're going to tell you how we're going to do the thing, and then we're going to do the thing. <laughs> and then we're going to trail off incoherently as we tell you about our social media. Yes. Sounds like us. Um, so this is our uh, 2019 best and worst list, and that is best and worst outside of podcast reading, because mm-hmm. um, obviously some of the books that we read for this podcast would very easily be the worst books we read in 2019. Yeah, I didn't read anything outside of the podcast that was worse than what I read for the podcast. And Same thank goodness. <laughs> also, frequently, especially for me, worst quote unquote, in this case, uh, frequently means just like least favorite. Uh, I, in particular, now that I no longer have a job where I have to read books for my job, if I don't like a book, I stop reading it. Um, So even my least favorite books are books that I enjoyed enough to finish. Yeah, one of my my least favorites is one that I didn't finish, but I got to talk about it. So the rules rules don't matter. Nothing matters. (laughs) Yes, Renata's rules are a little bit different because she is a librarian and thus frequently reads books anyway. Also, again, rules are arbitrary. We're just gonna just gonna chase our bliss. Um, speaking of arbitrary, time is also arbitrary. So we're not limited to things that were only published in 2019 the way most other year-end lists are. Uh, we're just counting stuff that we happened to read in 2019. Regardless of what year it was first published. Correct. Um, And uh, so outside of that, the previous episode we did was about children's and middle grade. uh, Children's, I'm sorry, middle grade and young adult books. And this episode will be about uh, books published for adults with an adult audience in mind and uh, comics of all age ranges. Yeah. So... Hopefully that explains it. It's it's not that hard, I think. Yeah. Uh, Shall we go ahead and get started? Um, so my number five best book for adults that I read this year was A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. Uh, I'm not going to go too deeply into this book because this is a book that Renata and I read for another podcast, A Sneaky Way to Get Around the Rules for Podcast Reading. Um, and we were on Overdue to talk about this, and if you want to hear all of our thoughts on it, you can probably listen to that episode, and odds are, maybe you already have. But this was everything that I really like in my fiction these days. It is very found family-oriented. It is a story about a group of people who are working on a particular spaceship, doing a particular space task in the space future. And it is just a bunch of little almost vignettes about their adventures going from one side of the galaxy to the other, and all of the little side trips they take along the way and the way their relationships develop. And it was honestly just very delightful. It was filled 
um, with just wonderful characters who I love, great relationships, very low stakes. I mean, like the, the the plot is very high stakes, like the main thing that they're doing, but even that is is relatively a, a sort of blip along the way of all of these other wonderful things that we get to watch them do over the course of their time traveling. Uh, and I thought it was great. I I also thought it was great, uh, but I didn't put it on my list, A, because Kate did, and B, uh, you can listen to that overdue episode. Uh, can and should, I'll say. Yeah. But yeah, it was good, and it, it honestly, uh, it made me want to read the rest of the books in the series, but then I got distracted and didn't do that. <laughs> so that's that's still pretty good though. Yeah. <laughs> um well my fifth favorite adult book of the year was Ninth House by Lee Bardugo, who this was her adult debut novel. We have definitely talked about her young adult books in the past. Uh Kate and I think are both big Lee Bardugo fans, as as are many people, because she's a legit best selling author. Um, but I like this one a lot. It's um, it's the kind of contemporary urban fantasy that is my real specific jam, and it's set in like an alternate modern day New Haven, Connecticut, where the secret societies of Yale actually have different um, rituals and magical abilities, and so there is a ninth secret society that is tasked with monitoring them and making sure none of the like dark magic gets out of hand and so um our our main character is a girl named galaxy stern who goes by alex and she has gotten a scholarship to yale specifically for her ability to see ghosts which is really helpful in this whole monitoring secret society's endeavor Um, But she is from a very poor family, and she feels like a big misfit at Yale for non-ghost-related reasons. And so it's it's about that. Um, I I mean, I think it's a great concept. I I love the world-building. I love the character. Um, It's a fun kind of um, mystery, you know, an, an urban fantasy mystery with ghosts and such in it. Uh, it definitely sets up for a sequel that I definitely would love to read. And I I would recommend it um, with a note uh, that there is a lot of talk of sexual assault in it. But if you are okay to read something like that, I would definitely recommend Ninth House. Excellent. I definitely plan on reading it. Um, I just have not yet reached that magical library hold number where <laughs> it is mine to listen to. You know, there's a lot of books. There are a lot of books, and there are a lot of people who want to read a lot of books. It's terrible. We should stop recommending books to people. (laughs) (laughs) So my fourth favorite book for adults that I read this year was Wilding Hall by Elizabeth Hand. I don't even remember how I found this book. I don't... I, I don't know how I ended up... It might have just come up playing hoopla roulette where i just go through and look for everything that's tagged with particular tags um but however i found it i'm very glad that i did uh because it was a very good book and it is told in a sort of almost a mixed media format where it is current times and a 
a reporter is putting together a retrospective on an album by a British folk band, the name of which I can't remember. It's fake one. It's fake. And they released one album at a while on a retreat at this old crumbling manor house called Wilding Hall. And then nothing else, because while on that retreat, their lead singer disappeared. And no one has ever heard from him again. And the band broke up after that. And the book is told through a series of interviews with the surviving band members, with their manager, with the girlfriend of one of the band members who was there that weekend, the a photographer who was there and it's just little glimpses inside this house where weird things were happening. It's not like scary, scary, but it has that it's so atmospheric uh, and it has this great building sense of foreboding throughout it. Uh, I listened to it on audio too, and it was a full cast audiobook, which really helped because it's told in this sort of like interview format. So it was actually like listening to interviews with these people. Um, it was very cool. And uh, it's on Hoopla, like I said, the audiobook and the textbook. So if you're interested in listening to it, I absolutely would recommend that version of this book is very good. Nice. Uh, Dorote just came to say hello and also wedge himself between me and the microphone. <laughs> well, it's, it's, he's such a helpful boy. <sighs> and I'm going to lean over him gently to tell you that my fourth favorite adult book of the year was Tuesday Mooney Talks to Ghosts by Kate Reculia. Uh, this is one that came recommended to me um, and to most of the internet, I think, by Margaret H. Willison, who whose opinions I trust and value. And um, so I checked this book out, and it is great. It's really charming. Um, it's something that I think is for adults, but would also have a lot of appeal for teens as well. Dorote, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Okay. Tuesday Mooney Talks to Ghosts is about... I, you will never guess. You will never guess that it's about a woman named Tuesday Mooney who actually only talks to a singular ghost, so that is sort of misleading. But uh, she lives in the Boston area, and that's another thing I liked about this book. It's clearly, um, it is written by a local-ish author. There's a lot of local flair to it. But even if you don't live in Boston, you can and should read this book. Um, so Tuesday, when she was a teen, her best and kind of only friend... Um, disappeared and is believed to have been drowned and Tuesday talks to her ghost um and she it's treated as if she'd had a mental breakdown basically like her she went and got treatment for it and her parents are like very skittish still about the whole thing but it seems like it actually is a real ghost that is for real talking to her but anyway, um, she gets involved with uh, an eccentric billionaire, Will Scavenger Hunt, which is, you know, a, a great and underused plot, of course. And so she and her best friend get involved, as well as this mysterious person who has shown up at a work event and um, 
you'll never guess. He has some family secrets. Uh, It's just really this sort of delightful romp to solve this um, this big citywide scavenger hunt to get the clues, to get the treasure from the billionaire's will. And would you believe it involves spending a night in a haunted house? You you probably will believe it. But uh, it's just, it's really fun. It's really funny. It's really, um, there's a good core of main characters who are all kind of quirky, but also there's a lot of emotional depth to it, and it is very much about these relationships and these friendships between between these characters, and, you know, the the power of friendship, and I'm always, I'm always here for a book about the power of friendship and ghosts, and it's not too scary, and uh, it's great. Hooray! That's another one that, like, I'm on the hold list, and maybe one day I will get to read it. Yeah. Holding out hope. Maybe someone will die and leave it to you in their will. Perhaps. (laughs) That would be oddly specific. (laughs) Uh, Well, you never know. (laughs) Um, So my third, we're on third, right? Yes. Yes. My third favorite book for adults that I've read this year, I actually cheated and put two. It's a series that I listened to in uh, rapid succession. Uh, and it was A Light Among Shadows and A Hymn in the Silence by Kelly York and Rowan Altwood. These were, this is a late addition to the list. Uh, I was driving home to New Jersey with my coworker, Rhett. And when we do that, we usually try to pick out a uh, audiobook to listen to. Uh, usually we try to aim for one that's long enough that we can listen to it on the way down and the way back. And they had sent me a whole bunch of um, suggestions that they found looking through BPL. And I remembered that someone had recommended this book to me and that I was on a hold list for it. And it was now available on Hoopla in audio format. Um, So I sent it to them and they said that it was a good idea. And we fucking loved these books. We loved them. We are very excited that the third one is coming out right before we go home for Christmas. (laughs) So we can listen to the third one on the way down to New Jersey for Christmas time. It's Um, a Christmas miracle. it It is a book, the first one especially, the second one too, both of them, that reach that like ideal ratio that I talk about a lot when I'm talking about books with queer people. P.S. There are queer people in this book where it is about 70 to 80% ghost mystery and 20 to 30% or 60, 60 to 70% ghost mystery and like 30 to 40% romance. And that is like my sweet spot. As I said, there are ghosts in it. The first one takes place at a boarding school. <laughs> It was like someone went down a checklist for me. Um, So the story is that we've got James, who has been sent to a boarding school that is, uh, you know, it's a fancy, expensive school, but uh, also we're in olden times of some time. I'm not good at what time period things take place in, but it's olden times. Pre-cell phones. Yes, pre-cell phones, pre-cars. James has been sent to this, like, expensive school for, like, 
boys who get in trouble but are still rich enough that their parents can send them to a good school or they can get scholarships, which uh, James quickly finds out that his roommate, Oscar, my perfect child, my my golden son, um, is a kid who's there on scholarship. And uh, James is there for mysterious reasons. And he pretty quickly bonds with Oscar and Oscar's group of friends. But there is this very cute, mysterious boy who's always got his nose in a book who he finds out his name William and who there's all these rumors that he was found in bed with another boy last year. So you should stay away from him. And James is like, excellent. I'm gonna (laughs) not do that. And he kind of like aggressively tries to get James to be his friend, William to be his friend. Meanwhile, Oscar keeps having to go to the head, the headmaster's office for punishment and keeps lying about it to James. Like it's very obvious to James that he's lying and he finally calls him on it, and Oscar's like, for your own safety, I can't tell you more. I wish I could. Um, and then my perfect, wonderful, golden, lovely son, Oscar, disappears. And all of the teachers and the headmaster are trying to brush it off like it's not a big deal. But James knows it's a big deal because even though his room has been cleared of all of his belongings, his most important belonging was still in its hiding place. And he knew that Oscar would not leave without it. So he is now on a quest to figure out what happened to Oscar and also what is up with all the ghosts he keeps seeing around campus that no one else really wants to talk about. James is a delightful narrator. The audiobook narrator is also a delight. The romance between James and William is very cute. We find out a lot more about the two of them and their various issues as the book rolls on. And it is a book of, I don't want to say low expectations, but I guess like low risk. As Rhett and I were talking about it, and as we were listening to it, we kept expecting like, oh, and, like, this person who they think is their friend is going to turn on them. Oh, and, like, this teacher who claims that he's very upset that Oscar is missing, he must be the bad guy, because that's probably not true. There are no twists in this book. (laughs) All of the people who start out as very bad continue to be very bad, and all of the people who start out as friends continue to be friends. And sometimes that is what you want. You want a very non-threatening book about boys hunting ghosts and avenging their friend's murder and falling in love and that is what this book is and it is the sequel continues to be that way because after they graduate from school they become assistants to a medium and then they hunt ghosts professionally this book series was made for me (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh the secret works as we all know (laughs) apparently uh yeah so if you like the same sort of shit that i like and i'm always wishing existed in the universe here i am telling you that it does exist and you should go listen to it immediately all right well or if you want something completely uh different from that you could check out my third favorite adult book of the year which is called thick and other essays by tressie mcmillan cottam um, Tressie is a black female academic. She's a great person to follow on Twitter. If you are a Twitter user looking for someone to follow, she's at Tressie McPhD, which is shorter than her actual last name. Um, and she's just a very smart sociologist. This is just a collection of essays. It's a mixture of kind of 
uh, personal, more memoir-style things, but always connected back into broader analyses of our culture and systemic racism and sexism. But also, it's it, it's funny. Like, I, I feel like I... I don't want to make it sound like it's homework. You know what I mean? Like, I enjoyed reading it, but it's very smart. It gives you a lot to think about. Uh, I would recommend it if you are an American or want to know more about uh, ways America's fucked up specifically. Excellent. I will say this about my top three. Um, I went back and forth several times about what order to put my top three in. I kept... A Light Among Shadows and A Hymn in the Silence at three because I literally listened to them like a week ago and I was like, some of these have been on this list for longer. So all all top three of these could have been my number one. That's how much I loved them. But the one that did come in at number two uh, was Into the Drowning Deep by Mira Grant. Uh, This was like a sci-fi, horror, thriller, another kind of mixed media sort of deal. This this is the book that actually made me buy new Bluetooth headphones because my old, very cheap Bluetooth headphones would go into this, like, resting mode when audio input wasn't being put in. But that, like, would mean sometimes, like, a break between tracks on an album or a break between tracks on an audiobook or a long pause on a podcast. And when it started up again, it would cut off the first few words. And I was so into this and so annoyed that that kept happening that I Amazon primed new Bluetooth headphones so I could finish (laughs) listening to it. It is the story of um, a crew, a boat crew, a boat full of people who are sailing off to the Mariana Trench in seek of a previous boatful of people, uh, seeking a previous boatful of people. Uh, the Itargatis was uh, a boat that was sent out by like a ship, whatever. Fucking, they're all the same. Um, <laughs> that was commissioned Wait, by Kate, like- that is so offensive to all our listeners who are sailors. <laughs> I'm sorry, sailor listeners. It's true. <laughs> um, uh, so it was like a sci-fi channel type network, fictional network, had sent out this boat uh, to film a mockumentary about the existence of mermaids. And uh, it disappeared seven years before the start of our novel. And while it disappeared, uh, some footage was found when the boat was found later. Everyone on it was gone. But they found some footage that was shot beforehand that was leaked to the public. And the public thinks it's a publicity stunt because uh, it's filled with these like creepy mermaid-like creatures attacking the members of the crew. Um, but those close to the people who were lost believe that it was actually like evil mermaids that they found. So this new um, crew has been assembled and they're going out and... Some of them uh, include Tori, who is a young woman whose sister, who she had a great relationship with, was on the boat and is now dead. Uh, And she is a marine biologist who has dedicated her life to uh, studying the sounds of the sea in order to uh, figure out what happened to her sister. Um, A reporter for the the fake sci-fi channel 
um, who is going out as part of their crew, a scientist named Jillian who has long supported the idea that mermaids exist, even though she gets like laughed out of academia. Um, just like this very varied group of people, some scientists, some not. Because uh, a lot of the scientists, it's like, oh, well, this is like a free research trip. Like, yes, we're quote unquote looking for mermaids, but we can actually do our own experiments while we're out there. Uh, so a lot of people signed up for it. And once they get to where the boat disappeared, uh, they soon realize that uh, the footage was not a hoax. These creatures really are out there and they are unprepared to stop them. Uh, it's told from points of the point of view of all the different characters in kind of an alternating uh, fashion, along with like clips from the news, from magazines, uh, all sorts of other kind of mixed media things put together. The suspense and tension in this book are great. It really like ratchets up your nerves as you're listening to it. Um, everyone, even the bad guys, for the most part, like the people who you really want to root against, you can find things in them to like, with one notable exception being Tori's asshole, biphobic ex-boyfriend, who dies because of his own pride, and it's terrible, and I loved it. (laughs) Um, but I love the whole book. It was great. There's queer people in it, um, there's a little tiny bit of romance, is very exciting, very creepy, very atmospheric. Go read it. I yeah, so that's if you don't know the pen name of Shannon McGuire, whose books I have previously recommended. I haven't read any of her Mira Grant books because that's the name she uses when she's writing like more horror y stuff. And I'm like, mm, I don't know, sounds scary. But just in yeah. case if you like scary things and you have liked Sean and McGuire but didn't know it's the same person. Yeah, go. I previously hadn't read any of her Mira Grant books either because I thought they were all zombie books and I don't mm. really care about zombies. Uh, but then I found this one and it's not about zombies and now I have to delve into all the rest of her Mira Grant books and see how many of them are zombies and how many of them are not. Yeah, and I've been told even the ones that are zombie books aren't, like, really zombie books, but, man, I don't know. But what I do know (laughs) is that... (laughs) Great segue. Thank you. (laughs) What I do know is that my second favorite book for adults of the year was My Life as a Goddess by Guy Branham. This is another memoir. When I read adult books, I tend to, like nonfiction, either biographies or essay collections, or a very specific flavor of urban fantasy, and that's, like, about it for adults. I don't know why, but it's obvious if you look at my list that that's what I'm into. So anyway, it's a memoir about his life. Um, If you don't know Guy Branham, you might... You probably have heard him on a podcast or, like, seen him as a talking head on a show or something and maybe don't know the name, but he's, like, a very funny um, gay comedian, and so this is, and he's also fat, and so this is a book um, about growing up and about pop culture and, like, trying to find, um, find representation for himself in pop culture and the ways that... A lot of pop culture is um, homophobic, but also the way it's fatphobic, and also the way that, like, a lot of gay men specifically can be fatphobic, and 
just trying to find um, find his way through all that, um, but also while still being really funny, making really sharp, funny observations, including, you know, he's maybe a, a 10, 15 years old or so older than us, so a lot of the specific references that he's making I didn't necessarily get, or, like, there are shows that I heard of, but I never really watched, but it was, st- I still just enjoyed his recollections of them. Uh, it's it's just a, it's a funny but also moving read, um, especially if you're already a fan of Guy Branham, but even if you're not, I think it's it's a good book. I liked it a lot. Hooray. Yeah. All right. My number one book for adults I read this year was The Twisted Ones by T. Kingfisher. Uh, T. Kingfisher, if you're unaware, is another pen name. Uh, It is the pen name that Ursula Vernon writes under when she writes for adults. And this was just a really fantastically put together horror novel with a really fantastic audiobook. I, I know people tend to be picky about audiobooks. I'm really not that picky overall, mostly because if I don't listen to audiobooks, I don't read, period. But this one in particular uh, was just the narration was fantastic. The pacing was fantastic. Um, It was able to... The thing that I kept telling people about this book is that there was a moment in the book that... A a scare that was coming that was very well broadcast. I knew it was going to happen. The narrator knew it was going to happen. The narrator knew what was going to happen when she looked out the window And despite the fact that I knew it and the narrator knew it and it was addressed directly in the text, when it happened, I screamed out loud. It it was just, it is a very skillfully put together book. Uh, It is a story about Mouse, whose grandmother has recently died uh, in, I think, North Carolina? North or South Carolina? One of the Carolinas. Um, And she was a cranky old lady who did not particularly seem to like Mouse very much, but Mouse's father's very sick and someone needs to go down and clean out her weird hoarder house. So Mouse says that she will do it. While she's cleaning out her grandmother's house, she finds her step-grandfather's journal. Um, And in it, he talks about uh, how her grandmother is terrible and had taken this book away from him and that he is going to try to... Uh, recreate his memory of it as best as possible. Uh, And it is filled with all of these weird verses that she gets stuck in her head. And she becomes determined to find this missing book that is somewhere in the house. And as she looks for it, and as she reads more of her grandfather's journal, weird things continue to happen around the house. She hears things out in the yard at night. Her dog hears things. She starts to see weird creatures that look like, uh, almost like effigies that are put up in various places around town. She just has this creeping feeling that something's wrong. She stumbles into this field that is filled with these giant, terrible, white sculptures, rock sculptures that match some of the, the verses that are in her grandfather's journal. And uh, she becomes determined to figure out what he was talking about, what is going on, what is wrong, and how to fix it. 
And it's based on a short story called The White People by Arthur Machen that is old, very olden times, olden. And it quotes a lot of it, and it. it's in fact where the title, The Twisted Ones, comes from. But it, it just like the atmosphere built up in this book, the the creepiness of it, the way that it is it is structured, it is like set up to give like maximum scares. And to be 100% honest, there's a bit in the middle where they confront the creatures. And as with basically every horror movie, horror novel, horror, whatever in the world, once you see the monster, it's not as scary anymore. So for that, those several pages, those several chapters, it still manages to be creepy, but it's not as creepy as what comes before and what comes after. And those parts are very creepy. Uh, So yeah, this is a strong recommendation if you can get your hands on it. I went to go check it out of the library so that I could read part of it for this. And there are like hold lists everywhere for it, but it's definitely worth it. And I will read you a bit of it now. I couldn't hear any birds here, not even the apparently invisible woodpeckers that seemed to fill the woods around grandma's house. Tap, a tap, a tap, tapping. Well, a woodpecker wouldn't find much to eat up here, would it? That one tree wouldn't make a meal for anyone. I glanced over toward my shoulder towards the tunnel and shrieked. Bongo yanked on the leash in surprise, then turned and cowered behind my legs. He was hoping I would protect him from whatever made me scream, but the end result was that he pulled me off balance and I fell backwards over him and we landed in a flailing heap on the grass. God, shit, damn, I said, or something like that. We sorted ourselves out. The leash got wrapped around my thigh and I had to do some unwrapping, complicated by Bongo trying to climb in my lap to make sure I wasn't mad at him. I felt like an idiot for yelling, but I had been badly startled when I turned around and saw that on the side, every one of the gray rocks was carved into a shape. The carvings were all the same sort as the deer stone in the backyard, but bigger. They had weight like... Oh, those giant stone Olmec heads in South America, say. Some of them even looked a bit like those heads, with leering human faces on them. The style was different, don't get me wrong, but there was the same feeling of mass. I got up and went over to one. It looked as if it went down into the ground instead of sitting on top of it. Hell, maybe it did. There could be weird ridges of rock sticking up that someone had carved into various shapes. Rocks did that, didn't they? I could have poked it, I suppose, but that would have been that would have involved touching one. I didn't want to touch one. It looked like it would be cold, which would be normal for stone, but some part of my brain insisted that it would be warm, maybe not like a human, but like a lizard lying out in the sun, and then I'd probably have to run screaming. I kept my hands to myself. I'm an editor. I have a vague knowledge of botany gleaned from my aunt and a highly specific knowledge of one particular breed of dog. I don't know anything about archaeology or modern art. I couldn't tell you if the carvings were 10 years old or 10,000. I mean, probably they weren't 10,000. Were there even humans here then? Were there still mammoths wandering around? Um, Probably not mammoths. 10,000 years ago was before the pyramids, but after mammoths, wasn't it? I was a bit hazy on the details. Normally I'd look it up on my phone, but actually, that was a great idea. I took out my phone, turned it on, it was about 5% power, no signal, and took a photo of the nearest head. It made the camera noise, then immediately shut off. 
stupid damn phone. Bongo peed on the dead tree in a meditative fashion. The carved face glared at me. It had bulging eyes, an almost non-existent nose. Its lower lip was pulled down to reveal broad, flat teeth that went most of the way to the ears. It wasn't the most pleasant thing I had ever seen. All the carvings were like that. They weren't all faces. Some of them were animals, like the deer stone, but even the animals were messed up. Their hind legs curled up into their bellies and over their backs or their mouths were open like they were screaming or panting or laughing. They were elongated and earless like snakes. A couple had swollen bellies and long breasts that wrapped around their bodies like their legs. I put an involuntary arm across my chest. It was painful just to look at that. As a modern art installation, it was grotesquely effective. As prehistoric art, well... I'd wonder a bit about the people who made them. But yeah, it's, it's a good book. I liked it. You should read I, it. I do not think, you, Renata. Um, <laughs> no, no, of course not. But uh, after the pyramid, before the pyramids, but after the mammoth seems just like a really good, um, relatable way to measure time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Definitely before cell phones. Um... Before cell phones, before cars, after After boats. the Big Bang. Yeah. Yeah, old times. Duh. All right. Well, my favorite book for adults was Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino. This will, it will shock you to hear that this is an essay collection uh, written by... Um, well, Gia Tolentino, who is a, you know, she's written for The New Yorker and other online outlets. Like, you probably have, she's story for Jezebel. Like, you probably have seen her stuff online if you are online the same way that I am. And I just, I just really enjoyed reading this. It's really sharp. It's really funny. And it's also, for me, Gia's around the same age as I am, and so this was something where, you know, with Guy Branham's book, I was talking about not fully getting his pop culture touchstones always, and in this case, um, I'm just going to start, I'm going to read you a little bit from the very beginning, this is the first essay in it, and I read it, and I was just like, I feel seen, this is extremely relatable, Um, let's talk about it. So the first essay in the book is called The Eye in the Internet, and here's how it starts. In the beginning, the internet seemed good. I was in love with the internet the first time I used it at my dad's office and thought it was the ultimate cool, I wrote, when I was 10 on an Angel Fire subpage titled The Story of How Gia Got Her Web Addiction. In a text box superimposed on a hideous violet background, I continued... But that was in third grade, and all I was doing was going to Beanie Baby sites. Having an old, icky-bicky computer at home, we didn't have the internet. Even AOL seemed like a far-off dream. Then we got a new top-of-the-line computer in Spring Break 99, and of course it came with all that demo stuff. So I finally had AOL, and I was completely amazed at the marvel of having a profile and chatting and IMs. Then, I wrote, I discovered personal web pages. I was astonished. I learned HTML and, quote, little JavaScript trickies. I built my own site on the beginner hosting site X page 
choosing pastel colors, and then switching to a starry night theme. Then I ran out of space, so I decided to move to Angelfire. Wow. I learned how to make my own graphics. This was all in the course of four months, I wrote, marveling at how quickly my 10-year-old internet citizenry was evolving. I had recently revisited the sites that had once inspired me and realized how much of an idiot I was to be wowed by that. I have no memory of inadvertently starting this essay two decades ago or of making this Angel Fire subpage, which I found while hunting for early traces of myself on the internet. It's now eroded to its skeleton. Its landing page, titled The Very Best, features a sepia-toned photo of Andy from Dawson's Creek and a dead link to a new site called The Frosted Field, which is, quote, better, exclamation point. There's a page dedicated to a blinking mouse gif named Susie, and a cool lyrics page with a scrolling banner and the lyrics to Smash Mouth's All-Star, Shania Twain's Man, I Feel Like a Woman, and the TLC diss track No Pigeons by Sporty Thieves. On an FAQ page, there was an FAQ page. I write that I had to close down my customizable cartoon doll section as, quote, the response has been enormous. It appears that I built and used this Angel Fire site over just a few months in 1999, immediately after my parents got a computer. My insane FAQ page specifies that the site was started in June, and a page titled Journal, which proclaims, I am going to be completely honest about my life, although I won't go too deeply into personal thoughts, though, features entries only from October. One entry begins, it's so hot outside and I can't count the times acorns have fallen on my head, maybe from exhaustion. Later on, I write rather prophetically, I'm going insane. I literally am addicted to the web. In 1999, it felt different to spend all day on the internet. This was true for everyone, not just for 10-year-olds. This was the You've Got Mail era, when it seemed like the very worst thing that could happen online was that you might fall in love with your business rival. Throughout the 80s and 90s, people had been gathering on the internet in open forums, drawn like butterflies to the puddles and blossoms of other people's curiosity and expertise. Self-regulated news groups like Usenet cultivated lively and relatively civil discussion about space exploration, meteorology, recipes, rare albums. Users gave advice, answered questions, made friendships, and wondered what this new internet would become. Spoiler bad um yeah so i'm I'm gonna end there i mean it goes on and makes some sort of more profound points about you know being online nowadays and internet trolls and how bonkers everything is but i i just thought that was a very funny look at what it was like to be a tween on the internet in the late 90s Yes. So, yes. <laughs> just there were lines I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, if you're new to the podcast, Renata and I met on the internet in the late nineties. <laughs> uh huh. We did. Um, we did, and that could have been my webpage. <laughs> like, <laughs> Uh, so it's, it's not all about the internet, you know, it's personal essays, but there is a lot about just kind of this current moment and what internet culture has been like. And 
you know, if you uh, if you're if you're a person like me, I think you'll find a lot of it very relatable. And then parts of it um, are going to be parts of it are different from my experience because also uh, she is an Asian transracial adoptee, so there's some of that in there. Um, just you know, more perspectives than just like the internet was weird in the '90s, but that was the hook that first got me, and it's mm-hmm. just really smart and hashtag relatable cultural criticism that I enjoyed very much. Hooray! Yeah. Um. All right. So it is time now to discuss our worst, least favorite books of 2019. Uh, and this actually is, as much as I said before, that a lot of times mine is just least favorite. This is a book that I would not have finished if I was not reading it for a book club. Uh, it was Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. It is, it does what it says on the tin. You probably know the story of this book because it's been adapted a hundred million times. Although, I will say this, there's no hot air balloons in it. I 100% thought going into it, I wore my fucking hot air balloon dress on book club day, or I I had planned to wear my hot air balloon dress on book club day, and I think I actually did end up going through and wearing it, even though there are no hot air balloons in this book. And it's just, I mean, it's old white man writes sci-fi and writes about different areas of of the world. Like, it's just like, low key, olden times racist high-key olden times racist in many places, and just not, you know, particularly my jam. But I had to read it for this book club so that we could talk about how collectively it wasn't really any of our jams. Yeah, I mean, it was fine. That was all I had to say about it. I, you know, it it is what it is. It's a quote-unquote classic Probably you've heard of it. Maybe you have read it or watched the Wishbone episode about it. But, you know, I like it very much out of all the other books I read. Yeah. So Yeah, I, I read it for the same book club. It was fine. Uh, I do want to bop back in. I was talking about Gia Tolentino like three minutes ago, and I said she was adopted. And then I immediately panicked and was like, was she? And I checked, and she wasn't. And I was thinking of a different book that I read. But she is Filipina, so like... The part that I remembered about there being different, um, a different cultural viewpoint is true. That's all. Um, my least favorite book that I read this year, and I didn't even finish it because I just couldn't, but I want to talk about it. And I actually, I talked about having Kate read it for the podcast, so there might be more about this to come. But it was Ani DeFranco's memoir, No Walls and the Recurring Dream. And it hurts me to say this because I, in the 90s, when I was, you know, making my Angel Fire websites, I loved Ani DeFranco. She was the first concert that I went to, like, that I picked out and wasn't, you know, dragged along with parents. Like, I loved her. And I know over the years she has sort of um, shown herself to, to be somewhat more of a problematic person, like holding, I don't know, some kind of retreat or something at a plantation, which, like, come on, you're, you know, you're supposed to be this feminist icon, you can't do things at a plantation, (laughs) stop it, Um, and this, I think I maybe made it a third of the way through, it just shows this real lack of self-awareness that was sort of shocking that it made it through and made it to print, and I just, I couldn't read anymore without 
uh, without at least the promise of doing a podcast about it to reward me. But, <laughs> like, what? What are you doing? Like, even in the parts that I read, I mean, there's um, parts where she talks about, like, just wanting to go up to people and tell them to stop eating dairy. I was like, why did you put this in your book, Anita Franco? Like, you, you know, you can have this thought, but then you wrote it, and then, like, an editor looked at it, and then you published it, and then I got this book. Why? Only you can answer that question. The other questions, that's a, that's a question to the universe, but. Yeah. Anyway, Anita Franco, Why? But now we can talk about the comics and graphic novels that we love this year. And um, I know some book lists, some people are particular about the difference between a graphic novel and, like, a collected trade paperback of comics. And uh, we are not those people, so don't even worry about it. Nope. And another sort of informal rule that we have for ourselves, mostly just to keep these lists, like, fresh and interesting and also because it's often hard to narrow it down to five anyway so we're just trying our hardest to get the list down to five things that were good but I'm gonna break that rule just because this was the last year um for the comic unbeatable squirrel girl like it had its final issue with issue 50 and it's a book that I we've both talked about on the podcast before, like just loving this comic book series. And I just want to give it a shout out for continuing to be good all the way up to the end. Like Ryan North stayed with it as a writer. The art did change. Like Erica Henderson was the first artist and then it changed to Derek Charm as the main artist for the book. But um, you don't you don't often see, like, one writer staying with a character for so long, and if you do, you maybe don't see it staying good all the way through, let's say. But I I read every issue of Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, and it was always great. Like, even the parts that I like the least are always when a character gets dragged into, like, a big cross-comics cross Marvel big event, like a Civil War or whatnot. But even then, there's... There's just a distinctive Squirrel Girl spin and voice on it that still makes it enjoyable to read, even if I don't love it as much as when it gets to be just plain Squirrel Girl. It's just, it's always such a funny book, like, laugh out loud funny, uh, always in the style of dinosaur comics, all these extra jokes packed into the page, um, and then also, uh just so kind like squirrel girl is more than i would say any other superhero just defined by being a a kind decent person and it's just so nice it's just so nice and then of course uh it is the only comic bold enough to uh have cat thor and just include her roommate nancy and her cat mew and her cat themed fan fiction into the text which is just truly incredible so Here's to you, Squirrel Girl. Thanks for so many years of being such a good comic. Yeah, um, like Renata said, uh, both of us have talked about this comic before in the past. Um, and I also toyed with putting it on my list. That and uh, also The Wicked and the Divine, which ended its run this year. And I think I talked about in a past podcast, I probably, I can't imagine not having ever had it as a top five fave. 
Um, but that's another one. Um, and that was the team on that was Karen Gillan on words and Jamie McKelvey on art and Matt Wilson on colors. And that was just also another phenomenal book that stayed fairly phenomenal throughout the entire the entire run. Very different from Squirrel Girl. Wildly mm-hmm. different from Squirrel mm-hmm. Girl. But another one that, that came to an end this year. And, you know, both those books are books that I've loved. And I thought they got great send-offs. And I'm sad to see them go. But I'm excited to see what the creative teams do next. But outside of that... <laughs> Uh, my fifth favorite comic that I read this year uh, was there's a lot of there's gonna be this is another book that uh, so it's Life of Melody which words and art are both by Mari Costa Uh, this was a book that I supported via Kickstarter I don't even remember how it came across my Twitter feed but for whatever reason I clicked through and I was like oh a story of like a high maintenance irritated fairy and a grumpy beast who have to come together to raise a child together because fairy tale law dictates it so sign me up Hmm. uh so i did sign up for it uh and i got a copy when it when it came out um at the end of the kickstarter and it was great it was very sweet uh another one of those like low stakes nothing you don't the entire plot is incredibly predictable down to the point where as they're slowly falling in love they have a big fight where they're like oh like i never really loved you anyway this has all just been fake to me the entire time our fake relationship oh because they have to fake date because the town that they're living in they have to be fake married (laughs) also the entire time see just full of things that i love um so yeah like even down to the very predictable like ah like we had a big fight and i never loved you and it was fake marriage for me the entire time and i never had feelings and i never want to see you again um it it was just a delightful the art and color are fantastic they just feel very warm very comfortable I guess. I don't know anything about art, and you're going to hear that as I continue to discuss comics. But it was a story, another story that felt like it was tailor-made for me, and it made me very happy. Uh, You know, again, like, not high stakes, not full of twists and crazy turns, just exactly what you would expect from it, and sometimes that is 100% what I want to read. Nice. Well, um, my... fourth favorite graphic novel of the year has has some twists and turns but not not a ton um it's laura dean keeps breaking up with me by mariko tamaki who has written some great stuff for marvel that i've liked and has also written original comics and um she wrote and illustrated this one and the art is very cool and it's just like a contemporary realistic story about a girl um named frederica who goes by freddie and she is dating Laura Dean, who's this very cool but also kind of mean girl who, well, keeps breaking up with her. And it's just, uh, it's it's just a nice kind of coming of age story. Um, it's set in San Francisco, and it's this very cool group of queer teens who like hang out together and. All the other friends are trying to get Freddie to realize that Laura Dean is kind of a jerk, and maybe next time she breaks up with you, maybe don't let her get back with you. And it's about how Laura is getting so, or I'm sorry, about how Freddie is getting so 
caught up with Laura that she's being a bad friend to her other friends who maybe need some support for various reasons right now. Um, it's about them going to see a psychic to get some help with everything. It's just, it's kind of a, a sweet story in the end about, you know, about how you should be nice to your friends, mostly. And, then, and I think that's nice. Uh, I'm just going to jump in to say that uh, Mariko Tamaki did actually did not illustrate this one, even though she did is she? an artist. Uh, Rosemary Valero O'Connell did the art on this. Oh, well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, I, I'm on the wait list for that. I want to read it, and I haven't yet, but I've heard very good things. Mm-hmm. Um, a book that I did read was uh, Sheets, which is Words and Art by Brenna Thumbler. Uh, this is a couple years old, I think, and it was kind of on the periphery for me because it does involve ghosts and any like middle grade graphic novels that involve ghosts seem pretty squarely in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did finally get around to reading this. I think it went up on Hoopla. So I, I finally got around to reading it and um, it was very sweet. It was very... Um, sad in places it's a story it's it's two stories really that and how they come together um the first is a story of marjorie who uh she is a 13 year old girl she has school and life and all sorts of kid things that she should be filling all of her time with but tragically her mother uh drowned recently And her mother was the person who was in charge of the family laundry business. And her father has uh, slunk into a depression. He is having some issues with alcohol abuse. And there's no one else to run the laundry. So that's what Marjorie is doing. She goes to school. She comes home. She opens the laundry. Meanwhile, there is a terrible human named Mr. Uh, Sobertuck who wants to buy the place the laundry uh, is occupying in order to open his white person yoga retreat spirituality place instead, like a little mini resort in town. Uh, And he keeps sneaking into the laundry at night to sabotage things in order to drive all of her customers away so that she'll have uh, no other option except to... Uh, sell the place to him and then essentially like work as his servants. He has promised her that her family can come work for him and live on the resort rent free, but not get paid if they will sell him the laundry. And she's 13 and she has to make these decisions by herself because her father's not there and doesn't know what to do. Uh, Meanwhile, we've got Wendell Uh, who is a ghost and who is not fitting in very well in the ghost world. He tells a lot of stories and he brags a lot about unreal things and the other ghosts kind of shun him. So he sneaks away from the ghost world to the human world and ends up at Marjorie's Laundry, uh, mixed in with all of the other sheets and fabric and things that are there. And his attempts to... Uh, kind of be himself and regain bits of like human life start becoming issues with her running the laundry and but in the end he's able to work with her and work with the other ghosts in the afterlife to kind of break some rules in order to make sure everyone has a happy ending 
it's a very it's a very sweet book. It's sad in places. Um, the art is really interesting. It's very different um, than I was expecting based on the cover, but not in a bad way. Um, it has this like really cool, almost like pastel-y muted color palette. And then it gets like grayer in the afterlife world. But it's it's uh, it's sweet and it's on Hoopla. So, you know, check it out. Spooky. Not really. Uh, <laughs> I just want to do the spooky voice for good. <laughs> well, my third favorite graphic novel of the year was This Was Our Pact by Ryan Andrews. It was and so good. It was so good. Yeah, I knew you had it on your long list too, but I took it. That's fine. Uh, I had a lot of things on my long list. Yeah. So I was just helping. Anyway, uh, this is a really great, like, middle grade, um, kind of magical realist, coming of age type story about this group of boys who their town has an autumn equinox festival every year, and they light these paper lanterns and float them down the river. And their town legend is that once they float down to the end of the river, the lanterns go up into the sky and become stars. And... Uh, Our main character is this kid named Ben, and his friends have decided that this year they're going to ride their bikes and chase down the river and get to the end of the river and find out what actually happens to the lanterns. And they've made a pact, a titular pact, that they will never turn back until they get to the end and see what happens to the lanterns. But uh, most of the kids are little punks, and they break the pact, and they turn back because it gets too late, it gets too far, they're tired. And so the only ones who are plucky enough to keep going are Ben, and then uh, this other kid named Nathaniel, who used to be kind of friends with Ben, it seems like, but Nathaniel is not cool, he's really awkward, he's very earnest, he just, like, doesn't fit in. And so Ben doesn't want to be seen with Nathaniel around the other kids, and he thinks he's kind of annoying. But Nathaniel and Ben are the only ones left, and they end up going on this adventure together that is very fun, very cool. And the art is incredible. It's so beautiful with the lanterns and and the things that they encounter are just so beautifully rendered in this kind of mostly, like, blues and whites and this you know spooky nighttime scene I guess I would say um so that's very cool but mostly it is about this kind of this coming of age and realizing that maybe you've been a dick to somebody and maybe that wasn't cool of you but also but also realizing that like you can grow apart from your friends like that's okay I don't know it's I liked it a lot. Obviously. It was very good. Yeah. The art was very good, too. The art was very good. Okay. So my third favorite graphic novel that I read this year was Bloom, uh, which was words by Kevin Panetta and art by Savannah Ganuchu, I'm going to say. Ganuchu. Sure. Whatever. He probably doesn't listen to this podcast. Probably not. Um, this was another, like, just, like, very chill, very, like, I know exactly where this is going, and I'm fine with it, kind of read for me. Um, 
Uh, it's about Ari, who is his parents own a bakery in this uh, resort town in Maryland, and he has these big dreams that he's going to join a band, and all of his friends in the band are getting ready to move to Baltimore, and now that he's graduated high school, he wants to go with them, uh, but his parents say he can't because their bakery, which is always just kind of like on the verge of being in the red, uh, needs him to help out. So he kind of says to his parents, well, if I can find someone who can take my place, I can go then, right? Because then you'll have somebody to fill the hours that you need and I'll be able to go to the city and it'll work out for everyone. Um, Hector, meanwhile, has moved into town temporarily. His grandmother has recently died and he is tasked with um, going through her house there and the things left behind and uh, has taken time off from culinary school in order to do it. Uh, So when he sees Ari's ad, he goes in and is very quickly hired by Ari's parents because he's just really fucking good at baking. He loves it. He loves it as much as Ari, like, desperately hates it and wants to leave. And he kind of starts hanging out with Ari. And Ari very clearly develops a crush on him that they kind of dance around for a while because Ari's got, like, one of his friends in the band. He's got two of them are pretty cool. One of them in particular treats him like shit and treats everyone else around him like shit. And he is desperate for this boy's attention and kind of parrots back all of the mean things in order to get it. So uh, Ari's kind of a little shit for a lot of the book, but he eventually gets his shit together Uh, And once he stops being a little shit as much around Hector, they do, like, sort of admit that they both have feelings for each other. Uh, And then, tragically, the night that they do so, the bakery burns down and it's kind of their fault. And it's, I mean, I I will tell you right off the bat, it it resolves well. They, They get angry and Ari goes away and Hector uh, goes back to school and... But his his parents eventually get an insurance, or his parents get the insurance check and are able to rebuild the bakery. And he is reminded how much he loved the bakery and loved spending time with his parents in the bakery when he was younger and thinks about how that has changed. And he apologizes to Hector and it's just very happily ever after. It's sweet. The art, again, is it's very, like, understated. And low key, there are great expressions on the characters uh, because a lot there's a lot of stuff that happens. I don't want to say subtextually, but outside of the words of you know, especially when Ari's being a little shit and Ari's stupid shithead friend is saying shitty things about people, and even as Ari starts to realize that he has feelings for Hector, a lot of it is through body language and expressions, and they're both very good. So yeah, this was this was a good one. It sounds good. Uh, that's one that my coworker book talked to a bunch of classes. So I I heard the book talk many times, and every time I was like, oh yeah, I should read that. And then I haven't gotten around to it yet. <laughs> but what I did get around to reading was um, the Faithful Spy: colon, A True Story! Exclamation point Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Plot to Kill Hitler by John Hendricks. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think I'm saying his name wrong, I don't know, um, 
I didn't know a ton about him, but what I did know was at um, the town where I used to work, the local Christian school would always assign the kids to read this, like, out-of-print biography of him, and it was really annoying because we had, like, one copy and we couldn't buy more because it was out of print, and I was always kind of like, it's sort of suspicious to me that this Christian school is so interested in, like, one Christian hero of the Holocaust, and, like, maybe you could read some other book about the Holocaust other than this one. Um, but this graphic novel I picked up, and partly, like, the cover is so striking, the art is just so bold and striking throughout. It really, it's not quite like a comic, it's like a text and illustrations, or a text and, um, different pull-out things, or sometimes it is... A, um, a few panels of a discussion and sometimes it's more like an infographic and the colors are really engaging and and the story is engaging too like I I like I said I didn't know that much about Dietrich Bonhoeffer but he really um sounds like like he was a really heroic person in a way that is very relevant to now because he was a Christian pastor in Germany in in the 20s and 30s and was one of the first people to kind of speak up and be like, hey, the, the Nazi party seems bad. Like, this all seems bad, and, um, and I don't think we should let him do this. And he even, he could have escaped. Like, he managed to get a visa to go and work in the U.S. in New York, but then he felt too guilty and thought that he needed to go back and fight for, you know, his homeland and, like, help out Jewish people there and do what he could to help. But also, like, while he was in the U.S., he went to different African-American churches and learned about racism in the U.S. and, like, helped with, in a, in a small way, like, got involved with the early, like, social justice movements in the U.S. Uh, and then he just, you know, he was a spy like he was doing all this like really pretty badass stuff for like somebody who never had been you know was a pacifist wasn't really trained for this and just the way that he was able to so quickly articulate like why this is wrong and why we need to um fight for people with different beliefs like it's inspiring he wrote there's some really beautiful quotes from him in here and it is it is an interesting story and it's a really well done use of the graphic novel medium like it because with some historical graphic novels it just it doesn't seem like you needed to do this in this format and maybe you just thought it would uh, never mind. I don't want to go down that road of, like, why why some historical graphic novels just seem, like, very flat and boring. But this one is super good. Hooray. Yeah. So, we're up to two, I believe. Yes. Yep. Um, so, my second favorite comic this year was The White Trees, which had words by Chip Starsky, art by Chris Anka, and colors by Matt Wilson. This book was beautiful. Uh, it was a limited series. It was just two issues. And it was just like a great, it is not, it is not the sort of thing that I might normally pick up. We all know how I feel about fantasy things, but I love every member of this creative team deeply. 
so I figured that I would uh, check it out, and it is it is just beautiful. I would the story is very good. So the the story is essentially it's this this uh, fantasy world, and the king of the fantasy world calls these uh, two warriors, three warriors technically, um, to see him and like the war that they fought is long over and they've all kind of retired and uh he says like hey i know you've retired and i know you probably don't want to see me anymore because like you were war heroes but at what cost but also the bad guys have perhaps kidnapped your children so maybe you should go find them so they're they're off on this quest to do so and there's a lot of tension between the three of them and a lot of of hinting at all of this stuff that happened in this war that happened in the past. Uh, we find out that their children not only were both kidnapped, but they were actually in a secret relationship together. But like the fucking art in this book is so good. I mean, like Chris Anka fucking whatever is fucking amazing, period. But like, God damn, this guy brought his A-game. Possibly because Chip Starsky was like, well, I'm writing for Chris Anka. I should probably have a lot of abs for him to draw. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Which he delivered on. Um, And the color is fucking amazing. Matt Wilson is so good at color. Obviously, everyone knows this. But it's... Just true. I know I'm just saying true things at you now. I know that I'm just <laughs> saying things like, did you know that Chris Aka is good at drawing and Matt Wilson is good at art and Chip Zdarsky is good at writing? But these things are true. And it just, the three of them came together to create this very nice, self-contained story. And I liked too. it was two oversized issues and it was the length that the story needed to be. Which is something that I always appreciate, especially in comics, a medium that kind of pushes things to go longer and longer and longer uh, if they're successful, you know, with the big two at least. Like this was an an indie comic. It was through Image. So not indie, indie, but, you know, but it, it just it was the perfect length of what it needed to be. And it told the story that it needed to tell in the way that it could tell it. And it was lovely. And... If you can find it, you should pick it up. I don't think it's been collected, but you could probably get it on, like, Comixology. Nice. All right. Well, my favorite graphic novel of the year was New Kid, uh, written and illustrated by Jerry Craft. And this is a contemporary realistic school story. Um, It's something that I think would be a great read alike for kids who grew up with Diary of a Wimpy Kid and are looking for, like, the next step up. Um, it's the story of a boy named Jordan who, he is black and he loves art and drawing and he wants to go to art school, but instead his parents sent, sign him up for this fancy um, academic private school where he is one of very few black kids. And so, as the title suggests, it's about him being the new kid in seventh grade and having to deal with all kinds of, you know, little microaggressions against him, like teachers constantly getting him mixed up with the only other black kid who does not look anything like Jordan. Um, And, you know, 
teacher, like other kids making assumptions that he likes to play basketball and stuff like that. And it just really, um, it's, it's also so funny and so relatable for anybody who's ever kind of been fish out of water or anything like that. And I think it's, it's really good for, I mean, kids, but anybody, any, any white person of any age who maybe hasn't understood, like, why people get upset about microaggressions, and you can just, like, really see the, the ongoing impact that all this shit is having on this kid, and it's told, it's a mix between just sort of a more standard, like, narrative, and then the comics that Jordan himself is drawing, and so it's, it's a different style when it's Jordan's drawings, and they're his way of showing what's happening in his life, and they're really funny, and so the part that I'm going to read to you is one of Jordan's comics, and we will um, we'll scan our favorite panels and put them up on the website, uh, worstbestsellers.com, for you to take a look at. In this case, the art for Jordan's comics, it's, it's sketchy and it's not as nice as the real art for the main story, but I, I like the effect of this. And this little comic is something that, that gets at what I'm trying to encapsulate about why I like this book. So, Jordan's comic is entitled Judging Kids by the Covers of Their Books. Mainstream books. And then he's drawn a book with a, a dragon and a kid on it. And this book is called The Magic of the Magical Magicon. A Magical Adventure. And then his description is Mainstream book covers. Cool, colorful illustrations full of magic and hope. Mainstream book plots. Prince Amy leaves his dull life to slay a dragon rescue Princess Brea and prove to his father that one day he'll make a worthy king. And then African American books and there's a cover of a book with two black boys on it and it's titled The Mean Streets of South Uptown. African American book covers. A depressing photograph full of realism and hopelessness. African American book plots. After moving to his third city in three years, DeQuell Scooter Jackson must decide if he will pursue his dreams of being in the NBA or join a notorious gang. And then it shows the back of these same books and repeats, Mainstream book heroes, lives in a magical kingdom, lives in a stable home, wants to live better, his father is king. Reviews. A thrilling, magical tale that is sure to inspire readers of all ages to never give up until they have found the treasure they seek. School Library Journal. And then the back of the African-American book says, Gritty, in big letters. And then uh, his notes say, African-American book heroes. Lives in the hood. Lives in a broken home. Just wants to live. His father is gone. Reviews, a gritty urban reminder of the grit of today's urban grittiness, Jet Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's funny, and that is also something that is getting better, and I think like this book itself is part of a changing tide, but uh, a lot of the books out there about black kids are, are like that gritty urban mess. And, you know, there's a place for those, but there's also... A big place for books like New Kid, and I loved it, and I think a lot of kids do and will love it, too. Hooray. Uh, my favorite graphic novel comic of this year was Crowded, uh, which is words by Chris Sabella, art by Rose Stein and Ted Brandt, colors by Triona Farrell, and letters by Cardinal Ray. Crowded is fucking delightful. 
Uh, it is the story of Charlie, who is we're living in the not too distant future where everything like gig economy, app economy has completely taken over. Uh, Charlie makes her living by working off several different apps, walking dogs and driving cars around and doing delivery for people. And she's got a fairly normal life until she discovers that someone has put her up on the website Reaper, where you can crowdfund someone's assassination. And right now, the reward for her assassination is over a million dollars. And she has no idea why, no idea who put her up there, no idea why the amount is so high, because she's not, you know, an A-lister. She's not anyone of any significance. Uh, So she turns to the app Defend to hire a bodyguard. And the only person available is the lowest rated, cheapest bodyguard, Vita, who is not looking forward to taking care of Charlie, who does not like to follow rules. But, you know, she is willing to do it anyway, because that's what she signed up to do. That's what her job is. And she takes that very seriously. And it is a very, like, opposites attract, but also they attract while running away from lots of people who are trying to kill them and being grumpy at each other constantly. It's Charlie's fucking delightful. She's a pain in the ass and she is a terrible human being, but I love her desperately. Vita is also delightful. I love her, too. They have a dog that Charlie Charlie takes, and it's just a dog they call dog, and it's like a little purse dog as they're trying to, like, hide out from these people who are all trying to get Charlie killed. Uh, it, it's so much fun. There's, I think, ten issues now. One just came out last month. The first trade is available on Hoopla, if that's your jam, and it should be, because comics getting comics on hoopla is great and you should definitely check it out it's just like it's just it is a a a fun smart story the art is so great the colors are very good there's a very like specific palette for each character that i love charlie's fat and she's always fat like she's not you know sometimes you get comics where it's like, oh, this is a character who was originally designed as fat, and now the current artist is drawing her as if she is, like, a size six, because that's what fat is to these people. Charlie's just, she's always fat, and it's great, and that doesn't stop her from being, like, excellent and sexy and a pain in the ass, and I love it. I kind of desperately want to cosplay Charlie. Do it. I, yeah, I gotta, like... Go to well, I guess I am going to a con this year, but um, yeah. So I'm gonna read a little bit from. It's hard to pick something because everything is very good, but this is when Vita takes Charlie to a safe house, which is actually Vita's house, and Charlie is like trying to get Vita to tell her anything about herself because she is desperate to know more, and Vita is very tight-lipped. So this is all narration over a series of kind of flashback illustrations. 
Charlie says, what's a normal day for you? And Vita says, quiet. I go to sleep early, full eight hours. And the illustration there is Vita sleeping on a bare mattress with a blanket as the sun starts to rise. Uh, the next panel is I wake up fully rested shortly after sunrise, ready to go face the day. Uh, the next panel shows her like still kind of in bed, messing around with a gun, not jumping up ready to face the day at all. The next panel is I take the morning for myself, no work to get my head on right first thing. And that's Vita sitting on the edge of the bathtub, brushing her teeth and reading her phone. <laughs> I spend the afternoon training and she's legging a training uh, dummy out. And then the next panel is a body is a weapon. I've got to keep it honed. Uh, and then we discover that she is using the training dummy to lean against while on her laptop eating popcorn and smoking. And yeah, it's just, it's a fun, it's a fun book. And that sounds fun. It's available on Hoopla, and everybody should read it, and then come talk to me about how great it is. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll pencil that in. Okay. But now the time has come to talk about the comics that weren't so great. And uh, this, mine is feels like a particular betrayal because last year I sort of grudgingly started reading Doctor Strange comics, um, and I really like them, and I put Doctor Strange by Donny Cates on my best list last year, and it just, um, I was reluctant to read it because in the movies, Doctor Strange seems dumb, and I was like, this all seems dumb, and I don't care about Doctor Strange, but the comics had kind of enough buzz that I picked it up and it was just this it was just what I wanted in a comic like this very whimsical um kind of street level weird magic problems featuring an awesome librarian character I was like yes all right I guess I like Doctor Strange now and now I gotta tell you no I don't like Doctor Strange anymore because this um specifically what I am talking about was collected in Doctor Strange, Volume 3, Herald by Mark Wade, with art by Barry Kitson, Scott Koblish, and Brian Reber. And this is, I mean, it really just is a matter of personal taste, but I like smaller street-level stories. I like weird, small magic. I don't like it. I hardly ever like it when comics, like, go into space and have to do, like, big cosmic things. Like, that almost always to me is very boring and I don't care and I don't care about Galactus and I don't care about the Silver Surfer and this is entirely that and it ends with Doctor Strange having to be the herald of Galactus or whatever and I don't give a shit please put Doctor Strange back on Earth and have him hang out with his talking ghost dog and librarian friend again that's all I want god I'm sorry about your tough life thank you <laughs> Um, so my, my least favorite comic this year is actually not a, uh, one that I didn't like. It's just, I didn't like it as much as I liked a lot of the other comics that I read this year. And I feel, this feels like a betrayal, but I'm going to make up for it afterwards. 
in a way. But my least favorite comic of the year was War of the Realms Journey into Mystery uh, that had words by the McElroys, mostly Clint, um, but the others as well. But even they will be the first to admit that it was mostly Clint. (laughs) Um, And uh, art by Andre Lima Araujo. This was a fine book. It was perfectly fine. It was funny. It was very cute. It was, the boys kept describing it as like the babysitter's club, which it absolutely was. Um, Oh, go on. A team, um, Thor's baby sister. I didn't, I haven't been reading, I wasn't reading the War of the Realms event at all because I I only read Squirrel Girl's participation. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Also, aside from this, that is all that I read of it. But I don't know, like, fucking celestial shit is going on, and Thor's baby sister needs to go into hiding. So this the team that ends up being assembled is, like, a lot of, like, oh, yeah, we'll get Hawkeye and Spider-Man and all these. And then it's, like, Kate and Miles and not any of the people that they thought they were getting at the outset. Um, and it's this team kind of driving around trying to save this baby. So they're like babysitting this god (laughs) who is attended to by, you know, a giant celestial dog as well. And also like trying to stay ahead of the bad guys and keep this baby safe and just being like dumb funny people around each other. Um, And it was fun. It was funny, but it was ultimately part of a larger event that I didn't give a shit about involving some characters that I didn't, you know, care about super as much. The story was fine. It was good. It was funny. The art was very good. It just, compared to everything else I read, like, did not necessarily hit that spot. It was, you know, certainly it was not bad. I think that Clint is a great comic book writer. I'm sure the other boys also had something that they added to it as well. (laughs) But, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't quite what I had wanted it to be, which is too bad. But also, like, it wasn't actually also bad. It was good. So at the end of the day, what does my opinion count for? Nothing. But it counts for something. (laughs) (laughs) What is my opinion as a person who was not reading anything else in the Marvel Universe except for Squirrel Girl and who was not paying attention to this event at all count for? Very little. Yeah, all right. (laughs) It's how I'll rephrase it. All Um, right. But to to kind of... It sounds better than Doctor Strange. (laughs) Tell you that. That is that is true. It does it does sound better than that? I will give you that. Um, like I said, it wasn't bad. It just wasn't it wasn't as good as other things I read. But as a counterpoint to that, um, one of the rules that I have for myself, and uh, similarly as Renata said, it is mostly uh, in an effort to narrow down a very long list of titles. Is I don't like to talk about a like number two or number three book in a series when I've already talked about a previous book. Uh, so the Adventure Zone graphic novel Murder on the Rockport Limited uh, with words by the McElroys and art by Carrie Peach uh, came out earlier this year and it was fucking delightful. Of course, my son Angus McDonald was in it. Uh, and he World's was best detective. Perfect, as you would expect. My beautiful, wonderful, magical boy. And it's uh, Murder on the Rockport Limited is like one of my favorite arcs of it's my favorite D&D arc of Adventure Zone Balance. 
I, I do like the Stolen Century more to the surprise of no one. Um, mm. But it is a nice little self-contained murder mystery on a train. And if you have been um, wanting to get into the Adventure Zones balance campaign and uh, are stymied by the idea of listening to 69 nice um, podcast episodes, there are now two graphic novels and... Murder on the Rockport Limited is fucking great. I co-sign. It's yes. fucking great. Ah, all right. Well, that that brings us to the end of 2019. But yeah, thanks for sticking with us. Uh, you know, obviously we hit five years this year, and oh. who fucking knew that we would do that? It's wild. It is. Yeah, and thanks. We, we wouldn't have done it if it weren't for all of you listening, because if you weren't listening, it would just be us talking to ourselves. Well, we would still do that, but we probably just wouldn't, like, record it and put it on the internet anymore. Yeah. So, th- thanks thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you heard about some books that you might want to read this year. Yeah. Um, and if you want to come tell us about these books or other books that you think we might like, you can find us on Twitter. We're at worst bestseller with no S. Um, cause the silver surfer took the S and I, I was so bored by his presence that I couldn't even bother to get it back. I was just like, bye, get out of here. Silver surfer with all your S's. Um, we're on Facebook or Facebook.com slash worst bestseller spelled normally. We have a Goodreads group, which is best accessed by going to our website, worstbestsellers.com, and clicking on Goodreads. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, all of the podcast places. You know what they are because you're listening to it now. Um, if you do subscribe, please take a moment to rate and review. When you rate and review, it pushes us up a little bit on the charts and makes it easier for people to find us. Uh, and, you know, you should. I'm not going to threaten you like I normally do, but you should because it's the holidays. It's a new year. Go into 2020 having done something nice to a podcast that you at least tolerate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh- you can subscribe to us on Patreon, where uh, you pledge a small monthly recurring donation that goes to us to do things like buy equipment and pay our editor and commission merch designs. And in exchange, you get all sorts of cute, cool. Also, some of them are cute. Some of them, one of them is a picture of Duarte. So, yeah, cute as well. Uh, yeah. Perks for you. Kate, thank you for calling Duarte cute. I know that pained you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I went to Renata's to pick up a book today and Duarte literally walked out of the apartment into the freezing cold landing to annoy me. <laughs> to greet you with love. <laughs> um, what was merch? We have merch. You should buy some. It's great. You can find it by going to com and clicking on merch and then you can get things from our podcast to wear on your body. Yeah. Um, if you want to look at pictures of Duarte, who's extremely cute, by the way, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Renata Snacks. And if you want to not look at pictures of cats, but listen to me talk probably about the Malloy musicals, you can do so by following me at 14 Across. My God, Kate, we went, we went like 90 minutes without you talking about Dave Malloy. I just did. I know, that's what I meant. Like, you, you broke it. Um... (laughs) (laughs) 
we'll be back in two weeks with, um, you know, we're actually in 2020. We're not talking about books anymore. And we're just going to talk about <laughs> Charlie's Angels with Kristen Stewart. Yes. So, <laughs> so probably that. Um, Merry or, Christmas to me. <laughs> and me. Uh, or think- we're recording this so far in advance we don't have a book picked out for what's coming next but uh probably it will just be charlie's angels starring kristen stewart (laughs) yeah um but don't don't quote me it might be another uh special episode like the one that we did on the shorter uh queer instinct one that we just did but you know what it'll be a surprise for you in two weeks oh okay i i guess i'll be surprised also uh anyway thanks so much for listening we hope you all have a happy what's left of 2019 and a happy new year as well and we'll see you on the internet bye yes bye